Are we okay forcing people to do things they don't want to do? It's the founding ideas that make our country great. Caesar was garbage, and so are today's bureaucrats. You're listening to Self-Evident and Forgotten. Here are your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. Well, hey there all. It's been a fat minute since we've seen everybody. Uh, who would have thought that three working professionals would have a busy end and beginning of the year? I mean, I couldn't have anticipated that, and I'm sure none of you did either. We do hope you all had a very relaxing holiday season, but we are back and ready as ever. It's an election year, which means that our dear beloved Christy will be very, very busy. Uh, From now on, you can probably expect that she is going to be joining us mostly for our deep dives, uh, but probably for the in the news like today, uh, she'll be out winning the hearts and minds of Colorado voters. And so... As your duo of doom, Cody and I will be your guide to the more positive month of January. Uh, But first, a random question of the episode. Cody, 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 Cody. If you could choose any one city to eliminate from history, which would it be? Who eliminate from history? Yeah, so not like you're going to bomb oh, them out. Not Cartago like Delenda asked. You suck so badly. <laughs> For all uh, those of you who aren't nerds, <laughs> Rome hated Carthage. And which orator specifically had this phrase? That's Cato. Cato. The elder, had, not the young. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. Cato, the elder, had this thing where he tried desperately to get the Roman Senate to declare war against Carthage. And, and, and let me preface this. At the end of every speech, he said, Carthago de Lenda Est. Carthage must be destroyed. He said this at the end of every speech. He could be talking about financing the sewer system in the <laughs> prostitution district of Rome. It wouldn't matter. He would just end the speech by saying, oh yeah, by the way, we need to kill the Carth- we need to kill Carthage. That just needs to go. And so Cody's over here saying, no, we need to end Carthage. But then, Cody, you wouldn't have much of Roman history to study. You wouldn't see the rise of the great empire after Carthage. I mean, that's the problem with destroying any city, like, is any city that we could think of has some notable place in history that was important. So I feel like there's not like a very important things happened there in the 18th century. Yeah, but we also can solve a lot of problems by never having it. <laughs> See, but that's the problem, right? You get butterfly effect, right? If you, yeah. if you, yeah, you yeah. stamp out. So you, you've got Carthage. I've got DC. I feel like I feel <laughs> like our priorities are very different with this question. <laughs> well, I mean, I think for me, it's just I've never been able to seriously use the phrase Cartago de Lenda Est. And so the, this is the first opportunity in my 30 years on this planet that I've been able to I do I gave so. you opportunity and you did not disappoint. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, whether we are destroying Carthage or we are destroying our 
lovely representatives in Washington, D.C., uh, we still have the ABCs of the month today. And, you know, we have some, I don't know, what would you call it? Some people who want to destroy other places. We, we have that in the news a little bit. We have some destruction oh, yeah. that's coming up. up. Um, but let's get into it. Let's go to our ABCs of January 2022. Uh, first up, we've got our aspiring autocrats, those terrible politicians you just love to hate. And for this month, we've got Russia being Russia on the Ukrainian border. Um, if you haven't been following the news, uh, specifically in regards to the international community, uh, Russia has amassed a significant um, buildup of troops on their shared border with Ukraine uh, to the point that it looks like an invasionary force. I mean, they say it's for defense, you know, that they're always going to say that, but it, it, <laughs> nothing, no, no rational person is saying, oh, that's just a defensive strategy. It looks like an invasion. And Ukraine and Russia share a very long and intricate history to the point where, I mean, if you look at anything in terms of Russian foreign policy, whether it was under, you know, Putin or Stalin or, you know, Ivan the Terrible, the Russians have this kind of pan-Slavian, you know, pan-Slav ideology that from Russia on its you know, Pacific coastline all the way to at least Poland should be under Russia's control. That's pretty much it, right? Not, not including China or Mongolia, but that Eastern European block of countries that have all those weird borders, Russia wants that to be part of Russia. They, they want to be have a unified Slavic idea. And that's always been the case. Um, you know, there's some geographic reasons for why that's why that, that's the case as well. Because until you get to the Alps, Russia has no natural defensive borders against the rest of Western Europe. So, you know, everyone knows why Russia wants to invade and take over Ukraine. But, you know, it's the 21st century. Come on. We don't we have sovereignty. We have respectable borders, don't we, Cody? Um, not if you're Russia, <laughs> apparently not. I don't think, I mean, I think what's so crazy about the, the Russia situation is that, you know, there's become more like, there's been increasing talk about like false flags. And it's this idea that states like nations will set up an operation that is covert and then gives them justification to like an attack an enemy right and so this is something that wasn't a big conversation or maybe it was and i just don't know it from being young and part of the generation that we are but it feels like it's becoming more and more common for people to talk about and i think the big reason is because as government documents get unsealed we see more and more of these happening right like there were false flag operations planned with cuba where we were trying to like sink a passenger ship and so in order to blame it on Cuba so that we can then invade. I mean, that's basically um, how the Spanish American war basically started. And then there's all sorts of examples. And then as you kind of, as more and more documents come out, you realize this isn't something of the past. This is something that's regularly going on. Mm. Right. So we had this, the problem when, uh, when Trump was in office with Iran and there was this question and like the immediate reaction was people were like, Oh, cool. This is a straight false flag. So like, we're going to evade Iran now. And then magically it went away. <laughs> um, and so what's interesting is that 
Russia's like very obviously setting this up, right? They're already, there's already news reports. There's already people on the ground. There's already Russian operatives in the Ukraine. Oh yeah. There's going, already like, politicians in their pockets ready to approve a, an annex. By the way, in 2014, Russia did take Crimea, which was territory of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they basically did this by sending in soldiers that had unmarked insignia. So they were not officially acting on behalf of Russia, even though they were ordered by Russian military authorities to go in and take basically to cause enough riots and political unrest that the people of Crimea, which have a heavy Russian influence, adopted a, a formal annexation to become a part of Russia. And, and that's a tactic Russia likes to use. Um, it gave Russia the warm water port it's always wanted. Um, but, you know, in 2008, they did a very similar thing with Georgia. They, they took parts of the country of Georgia for themselves. So this is not new and it's definitely a trait of putin of vladimir putin so they're just i mean they're so obviously doing it again oh like it's it's it's, there's no there is no like there's there's no no nuance there's no subtlety it's it's kind of disappointing it's kind of disappointing but what's so shocking about it is just like they're so blatant and in in your face about it and then they just get away with it and do it anyway like crimea this is what we're seeing now is just Crimea on kind of a larger scale, right? Yeah. There's a bigger military buildup. They're trying, and in Crimea, it was more civil unrest inspired by- I've tasted the frosting and now I want the cake. Yeah, and then right now it's a lot of, I mean, they're building up troops on the border, hoping that somebody's going to do something that they can justify. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's even bigger, but I mean, it's the same thing. We, we, we saw exactly what happened and they're just doing it again. And everybody's like, well- it's Russia. Russia will be Russia. Well, that's not necessarily true. We're not doing the same strategy because I don't know if you saw this, but today the United States announced that it is, I think it was today. If, um, depending on when this goes up, it will have been a couple of days before. Sure, but, sure. Uh, the U.S. has announced that it is that we are deploying troops to the Ukraine from Fort Bragg. So, so we are officially getting involved. Let, let, so we're not going to do a deep dive in this. I don't think we are. But let's let's just give you a, a, a basic background of what's depending what's, on what happens in the next couple of weeks. We very well may be doing the we, deep. We dive. might just we <laughs> might just have to do this. This is, this is big. I didn't know about that uh, about that aspect. So um, back in 2014, as kind of a kind of a truce, kind of a treaty, um, the international community pressured Ukraine to minimize or or reduce its military forces quite significantly to appease Russia into saying, "Hey, don't invade." We'll, we'll agree to take weapons out of Ukraine if you agree not to invade Ukraine. Putin said, okay. And now, six, seven years later, when everything's kind of in place for Ukraine to be weak, he says, cool, I'm back. I'm taking Ukraine. And Ukraine doesn't really have anything to defend itself. And that's more or less the West's fault, right? The United States and NATO. And one of the reasons it's our fault is that we've pressured them. We've wanted, or maybe not we, there's been a lot of pressure from Ukraine to join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a military alliance of basically Europe against Russia and its sphere of influence. And we've wanted Russia to be a part of, uh, excuse me, we wanted Ukraine to be a part of us to provide a barrier against Russia influence. But Russia said Ukraine has never, ever been a part of NATO. It's never been a, a consideration. You guys are just doing this to piss us off. Which, you know, that's fair, right? NATO probably should have been disbanded in the 90s, but okay, we're going we're gonna to ignore that for now. At this point, 
there is no formal alliance between Europe and Ukraine. Nevertheless, a bunch of European nations like Italy and the United Kingdom are sending weapons and ships to the area to kind of dissuade Russia from doing anything. Uh, and apparently, like Cody said, we are sending troops ourselves, which, Cody, you want to talk about why that may or may not be a problem? Well, I mean, so Fort Bragg, so where the troops are coming from, is one of the largest um, army bases in the U.S., but... It is also home to, I believe, uh, the United States Army's Special Operations Command, which oversees uh, 1st Special Forces Airborne and the 75th Ranger Regiment. So these are like high speed special ops, special forces guys. So I don't know who's going over. I didn't see the announcement of like what units or or uh, or but they don't usually they're not usually announcing when special forces move over. But here's the problem is we are now committing military power to a country that is not our country, uh, that is in the midst of being pulled into an open conflict, right? And so this was, it's already a bad situation when you've got Russia with open hostilities on the Ukraine border and obviously conducting false flag operations from behind the scenes, both through armed, uh, unmarked military operatives, as well as through politicians. I mean, it's almost certainly happening. Um, and we're not allowed to go to China or Russia anymore. We're screwed. <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> Just you know, taking yeah. things off the vacation list. Um, what, why? Do, did you have any designs to visit Beijing and Moscow? Literally none. <laughs> but... So that's obviously happening. Well, now when you throw U.S. troops in the mix, you know, maybe they're hoping it has a deterrent effect and that Russia will back down. It's not going to help relations, that's for sure. Or what happens if you get pulled into open conflict? Now are we in some legitimate actual conflict with Russia? Are we in? And so here's the other problem, right? So one of an interesting fun fact that I shared with some people today is that uh, the United States hasn't. So Congress mm-hmm. is charged with formal declarations of war, which is just uh, a legal fancy paper saying, hey, our government hates your government and we're going to try and beat you. Yeah, well, and it's I mean, yes, but it also look, there's a lot of laws, everything. <laughs> but there's also law surrounding international conflict. And so there are rules under which two countries can kill one another's people. Mm-hmm. And so it it moves you from this peaceable status into a war status in which then you're falling under these different rules and regulations on armed combatives and whatnot. Uh, But Article 1, Section 8 charges Congress with being the body to authorize the United States in war. Right. And so everybody listening can think back to, uh, you know, 10 years in Afghanistan, you know, the global war on terrorism. Um, Prior to that, you know, uh, other Gulf Wars, the 90s, Every, right? Everything after World War II, Congress has basically provided some legal authorization to the president to do some military action in those contexts. But what you said in there, Congress has not formally declared war since World War II. Correct. In all of the conflicts in U.S. history, and right, we're, we're people pointed us as being rather violent through our history. We're imperialists. Yeah, we've declared war 11 times, 
And most of those were multiple declarations for world wars against multiple countries. Mm-hmm. Those were individual declarations. Right. Um, and so all of these conflicts have been happening as conflicts, not as wars. But one of the things that you have difference, one of the p- parts of a declaration of war is generally it's declared against a like a nation. It is people that have a uniform that march under a single flag that are following a, sing- a, a command structure. That's the three factors in international law. Another, another state. Yeah. And so those are the three factors. Well, the problem is, or at least the, what they argue, is that when you get you're dealing with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they don't have defined territory, which right. is one of the factors under federal law. They don't necessarily have like a uniform, like a consistent um, uh, obvious declaration of who they are some of them don't have a flag isis has a flag for example Um, but sometimes they're different right they have distinct flags for different sects um and so you run into all these problems on war declaration allegedly you don't have that problem with russia like what's your excuse gonna be like what's our plan if and look (laughs) the administration that exited Afghanistan the way it did may not want to get involved in another one is maybe not the administration that I would be. Uh, Cause look, the same people that oversaw the Afghanistan withdrawal are going to be in power and overseeing those troops that we just sent to the Ukraine, especially since no one got fired from the Afghanistan withdrawal. Well, two people got fired. The two people that criticized military leadership, they both oh, got fired. Oh yeah, sure. That's right there. <laughs> So, you know, and, 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 you know, you make it, you make a really strong point that said president is commander in chief. He can order troops into combat situations without authorization from Congress. Yeah. And that's, and that's where it gets tricky because, you know, you, these 8,500 troops, they haven't actually gone to Ukraine yet. They're on heightened alert for the possibility of deploying in an instant. The president says, yes, let's go. So nothing's happened yet, but you know th- this is all within his authority. He can send them over and he can order them into combat without Congress. I mean, that kind of poses a problem. So yeah, we're not at war, but we're definitely conducting warfare. Yeah, and right, so the, the commander-in-chief's power is meant to be quick response. It's meant to be the idea of, you know, somebody's coming, there's an imminent attack, or there's an imminent threat to American life, to, to the United States. Um, this, I mean, I don't know how you justify that under this, right? We've gotten to the point where the executive power over conflicts Mm -hmm. is so broad that you don't need to declare wars anymore. Thanks. Right. (laughs) Well, and this, I mean, I mean, thanks everyone senior, but definitely. Yeah. Um, and so that's a huge problem. We've gotten to the point where, I mean, it's another example of, Congress offloading responsibility, right? This is Congress's responsibility. This is what they're supposed to do. They are supposed to be the people's representatives. They're supposed to debate these issues. They're supposed to determine if there's an actual reason for U.S. interests to be involved. And instead, they abdicate. They give fake blanket authorizations and monetary commitments to um, to sponsor these conflicts. And they don't actually take any responsibility for really addressing them and really weighing into them like they should. Right, and because, because if Congress was serious about not going into a conflict in Eastern Europe, they would, they could pass a stat, uh, uh, they could pass a law 
specifically a budgetary restriction that forbids the use of American uh, uh, resources in that kind of conflict. They can say the president shall not engage in any operations in Ukraine, period. He could just say, that's it. And the president wouldn't really, I mean, you could argue that that restricts his commander in chief powers, but at the end of the day, you wouldn't need to do it from a thou shalt not operate. You just say, cool, you can do what you want, but you have no money for it. Yeah. I mean, it's the same joke of, you know, John Marshall has his order. Now let's see him enforce it. It's the same thing of sure. You can go do it. You don't have any cash to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could easily do that. Yeah. Also, the commander in chief authority has been expanded very greatly since. Sure. But there, there is zero legal way to reduce it without uh, a, a political compromise because for everyone listening, the Supreme court will almost never weigh in on, you know, the power of the president to be commander in chief for one simple reason. The Supreme court, in my opinion, Cody might have a different opinion rightly assumes that this is what we call a political question, not a legal question. Does the Constitution, our supreme law, deal with commander-in-chief powers? Yes. The Constitution doesn't define commander-in-chief powers. That's up to the political system of Congress and the president together. And in every instance that we've seen executive power being expanded, specifically on the front of the military, it's been expanded by both Democrats and Republicans. And when it is, the opposite party says this is terrible. So there's no principled basis from either party on restricting power. And so the courts say, yeah, this isn't our problem. This is yours. We're not going to deal with this because it just caused havoc in the the legal system. Yeah, but it removes to circumvent that declaration of war. And and, right, so Article 1, Section 8 provides for a, a lot of different powers of Congress in like in companion with this declaration of war, right? So they have the... Um, the power to, so clause 13, the power to provide and maintain the Navy, um, clause 14 to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. Um, so clause 12 to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money uh, to that use shall be for a longer, for a longer term than two years. So these are all focused on like, how is Congress addressing the size and scope of what the U.S. military is, right? So we've talked before on previous episodes, right? We were meant to have a standing Navy. That was intended. We weren't really yeah. meant to have a standing army, beside the point. But now certainly the president is the commander-in-chief of those forces. Mm-hmm. But Congress has the power to fund the forces, to arm the forces, to create the rules surrounding the forces, and also to decide on those formal declarations of war. When you circumvent that declaration of war, what you do is you're circumventing the public facing conversation, because when the executive is acting as commander in chief, he acts behind a lead curtain, right? There is there is no transparency there. They're, they do not have to give any indication of really what they're doing. These, these are all things that can be conducted behind operational secrecy, but when you shove it into Congress, you shove it in front of the people and you have this open dialogue and this conversation. And those people are responsible to their electors and their electors are the people that are going off to these conflicts to fight and to die. And so you need that check and getting around that check is a huge circumvention of the system that is supposed to balance this out. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about aspiring autocrats like that's obviously Putin. 
But at the same time, the, the oh, he's big, not aspiring anymore. Oh no, he he's a he's an achieved autocrat. Yeah. Um, the biggest aspiring autocrats sometimes are right at home, right? The the military, the especially the higher up officers, um, and then the presidency itself. You no, know? I get to do what I want with all these bombs and guns and men. But enough of autocrats. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about something else to bash on. Uh, a BS bureaucracy. The stupid and asinine rules from your friendly neighborhood regulator. Um, we had uh, an interesting outcome. I was not actually expecting it, in which the Supreme Court, for now, uh, shut down President Biden's vaccine mandate uh, from applying to most businesses in the country, which would affect like a hundred million uh, workers. Um, but there are some caveats. Cody, you want to talk about the caveats? Yeah, there's goods and bads, right? So the Supreme Court struck down uh, Biden's OSHA mandate or the mandate that was passed through OSHA, um, which is occupational safety and health. Um, And so that was the one that was going to apply to all businesses with 100 employees or more. And so the Supreme Court struck that down as being overly broad and outside of OSHA's authority. Right. Um, essentially there's this legal doctrine that is the equivalent of like, I don't know, you're not going to hide a lion in a mouse hole. And so it's this idea that like, you're not going to hide giant, big, broad powers in tiny little hidden sentences. And so where they were trying to justify it under the OSHA emergency mandates and rules, they were like, there's, this is obviously was not intended to be this big and this broad. Yeah. The court, I think specifically said, what was that case? NFIB versus department of labor. Was that what it was? Yeah. That's yeah. the OSHA mandate. The Supreme court basically said, okay, president Biden, your emergency order to require vaccines for these companies is based on this uh, special provision of OSHA, the department of labor, to issue an emergency ruling to forbid or regulate certain products um, to protect worker safety. And, I, and the court was very specific. It was very, it was very much a Clarence Thomas argument. OSHA's mandate is about worker environment. And so, you know, if there's a specific chemical that's used in the production line, okay, OSHA can step in and do an emergency ruling. One of their prior emergency rulings was on asbestos, for example. Precisely. The vaccine is not a worker-specific idea. The the, the COVID, specifically, is not a a worker or work-related environment-only issue. This expands to everything. And if you mandate the vaccine at the workplace, you would necessarily mandate the vaccine outside the workplace, which is beyond OSHA's scope and authority. And so, you know, that's that's really where where, you know, the Supreme Court said, okay, you can't do it through OSHA. But and so interestingly, too, today, uh, OSHA formally withdrew the mandate. Really? They're not going to try and work around it? Apparently, I just saw a headline. I haven't looked into it, haven't read into it. So listeners, if you're hearing this and like when this published that this turns out to be a huge hoax, I'm sorry, but um, I did see the headline today that they're withdrawing the mandate. And so then, cause this was on an early par- part of the case. It wasn't kind of the formal declaration. This was expedited. So it wasn't the final decision of the court that they were challenging. 
So this could have gone back and they could have argued it some more and it could have gone up to the Supreme Court again and gone. So they could have redone the case, essentially relitigated it fully. Um, but it sounds like they're just going to withdraw and recognizing that they're not going to have the votes on the Supreme Court. There's no way. Um, but so there was a win. There was also kind of a loss. So the Supreme Court upheld the Biden administration's mandate on um, health care providers that receive federal funding for Medicare and Medicaid patients, which is like every hospital in the country, basically. And so basically, if you don't know, Medicare and Medicaid are federal insurance programs that are designed to help um, elderly and to help uh, people with disabilities, things like that. They're special care insurances, essentially. Care for the old, Medicaid for the poor. Yeah. Um, And so almost every hospital and medical facility takes Medicare and Medicaid. But the key here is they're all accepting federal funding. And so there is a doctrine in federal law in in federal law and constitutional law that when Congress decides to give you money, they get to put conditions on that money. This actually comes from what North Dakota v. Dole. Hey, yeah, yeah, all right. I taught this I my kids a, a couple months ago. I think that's the right case. So this is why we have uh, the drinking age of twenty one in the United States, for example. So. Almost every state in the union takes federal money for highways. Mm-hmm. And as a condition on federal highway funding, you have to have a prohibition on individuals against drinking alcohol under the age of 21. And you so this is to build bridges, have your speed limit no higher than 75 miles per hour. Yeah. And so before, when the federal government wanted to influence people, instead of just passing laws that they couldn't pass, they would just give out money that they're not supposed to have. And they would put conditions on that money. And the court would regularly say, look, you have an option. You could take the money and then you're going to have to change the law because it's a condition of the money. You're signing a contract, for example, with the Mm -hmm. federal government or don't take the money. Yeah. It's your choice. You're not required to take the federal funding. You're not required to accept Medicare and Medicaid. At least you do, you you accept the conditions of the federal grant. And so I'm actually really conflicted on this one, right? So it's, it's very clearly a broad expanse of these conditions. Um, It's very clearly them taking something and just really stretching the limits of what can't be. And so you saw this get struck down with Trump where they tried to condition certain dollars on certain things or saying like, you can't be a sanctuary state for X or you can't do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times those were struck down because the subject of the condition has to be substantially related to the subject of the funding. Right. And that, and that's from North Dakota v. Dole. I, 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 now I know, I, I definitely remember that the condition has to be tied to the, the, the funding area. So like in education, you know, you can require certain curricular requirements if you are financing curriculum, but if you're going to finance a building, you can't, you know, control correct. So there, there are, there are stipulations on the stipulations. So yeah. South Dakota v. Dole. South. That's what it is. Um, but that dealt with the highway funds. And so, yeah, you have to be substantially related. So for example, you know, they couldn't condition, you know, vaccination of healthcare workers on highway funds. 
that wouldn't be substantially related, but because they're related to the provision of healthcare to Medicare and Medicaid patients and the federal government pays for that healthcare, they provide the condition. So here's my conflict is that this is very obviously a broad expanse of these, this conditions doctrine under the spending clause, but this is also the problem with taking federal money. Oh, right. Yeah. So all all of these orgs have been taking federal cash for decades. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be so upset by this, but the you know the federal government has intertwined itself so much within the healthcare system that you know people like to say you know we have capitalism for healthcare sucks. Like you don't know that there's no such thing as a capitalist healthcare system. We've they, it, like no, it's it's just not a thing. So I I agree with you that this this is worrying, but I think what I kind of get frustrated most about something like this isn't so much that the federal government is saying, Hey, you can't do this because of these conditions. I accept, I accept the premise that it's the federal government's money. You want to use it. You got to agree to what we're doing. I don't have a problem with that. My problem, even if you're stretching that a little bit, my biggest problem is the fact that the government has the money to influence these programs to begin with. That's my bigger problem. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge problem, right? We've gotten to the point where taxation and income tax, which was supposed to be a temporary program um, and is just a permanent part of our lives is, is a vast 16th impact. amendment <laughs> uh, is a vast impact um, on our lives. And the federal government is just gathering and gathering and gathering more and more and more money. And they're pushing it into programs so that they can influence things. Right. So, The reason why they can influence the drinking age is because they're using taxpayer dollars to bribe states to pass laws. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's what you're seeing. And so what this is, is this this is taxpayer dollars that were used to now it's going to be used to bribe hospitals to take to force their workers to take a vaccine. I mean, you they the hospitals can start saying no. I mean, they can they could give back the funding or not get any further funding and they cannot comply with the mandate. I mean, that's up to them, but it, I think the, the interesting thing here or what I really hope comes from this and what I really want people to be talking about from this and what I'd love for our listeners to start kind of like thinking and digging into is at what point are these conditions so severe that people really start refusing federal money? Dude. And that's what we're seeing. And so we saw this at, as your resident gun lawyer. Uh, this is something that's going to come up with the Biden administration that they're already talking about dealing with like red flag laws, that they're going to tie some federal safety funds and federal policing funds to states having red flag laws. And I wrote an op-ed on this and there's an easy answer, right? Don't take the money. That's the easy answer. That's the easy answer. I, I'd be curious about that. And we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I think there's something in South Dakota v. Dole that the conditions also can't violate currently existing law or the Constitution. That that that's also something. So if a if red flag laws violate the Constitution, which you know you and I arguably think so, that condition in and of itself is impermissible. Yeah, it can't be unconstitutional. So yeah, if that would be impermissible, mm-hmm. um, depending on how the courts would. Str- that's the problem, right? Is you get this like this feedback effect because then you need to go and you need to get a court to declare that whatever the, whatever the structure of the red flag law is unconstitutional. And in those cases, right, they violate people's due process rights, right? Because you can't face your accuser and you're 
adjudicated as guilty without any even notification of the hearing, essentially. So that's a problem. The other problem is un, under South Dakota v. Dole, sorry, one of the factors is that it's the conditions are not supposed to be coercive. And this is an interesting question that you get into is like, what does that really mean in the grand scheme of things? And at what point, so in that instance, the highway, the drinking age and whatnot, that was not coercive. But I I, I don't. Well, nothing's coercive because you don't have to take the money. And that's the problem you run into is like, what's coercive? That seems like a really, that seems like a penumbras and emanations definition. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, the, the factor test that was established is it's a five factor test. It's, <laughs> of course. Um, right. It's, uh, it's, uh, you have to, it has to be in furtherance of the general welfare, unambiguous, not unconstitutional related to federal national programs and uh, not coercive. Again, not coercive being very, very yeah. clear, but if people are starting, like we need, people really need to start looking at these things and realizing that this is how the federal government does business, right? When it can't pass a law or sometimes, I mean, the, the highway drinking act, that was an act. It was a um, minimum drinking age act or something like mm-hmm. that. But when they can't force national policy through, you know, mandated federal law or through federal agencies, more common than, than actual law, they just use coercive spending. Mm-hmm. And we need to start really paying attention to these. And I think what you're going to start to see is you're going to start to see more of these states that are not on board with this changing federal agenda. I think you're going to see those states start to to pull back and start to not take federal funding for things to start to, you know, not be involved in these programs. You're seeing it in Florida. There's a lot of other states that have been doing this. Oklahoma doesn't yeah. take a whole ton of federal money is my understanding for a lot of things. Um, I don't think Wyoming does either, but no, it's just that most of Wyoming is owned by the gov- federal government. Wyoming's not as bad as some states, but <laughs> Nevada is the worst. Um, but I think you're going to start to see states wake up to this. And I think as as you're seeing people kind of fall behind these anti-Fed and pro-states rights governors and governments, I think you're going to start to see this happen more and more. And you know, as the federal government starts conditioning things on like education funding, that's going to be a big one on public safety, police funding, dealing with gun rights. That's going to be a big one, too. So I think this hopefully uh, will help people wake up to to this problem that a lot of a lot of us just don't really pay attention to all that often. and don't really think about all that much. Don't take candy from strangers. Don't take money from the government. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great tagline that needs to be a bumper sticker i like it i like it we'll, 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 we won't trademark it because we don't believe in intellectual property <laughs> <laughs> no but we need like a listener with one of those like cricket machines to like make make a few of those for us <laughs> I'm sure my wife has a cricket machine i'll just ask her oh perfect yeah all right abc's last up is corrupt cronies the worst of both worlds corporate and government um we're going to be focusing on government a little bit here uh, recently, at least from my perspective, I've been hearing a lot about how most congressmen, when they retire and they leave office, they leave as millionaires, uh, pretty significantly wealthy, more so when they entered. Uh, you know, how does this happen? 
plenty of people make uh, kind of the low six figure salaries that members of Congress do. They make like some like one hundred and two thousand a year. Um, you know, that's that's nothing to sneer, but it's also like not the most you can earn upwards of 15 times that in the in the private sector, uh, depending on the position that you're in. But, you know, plenty of people make low six figure salaries, but very few end up extremely wealthy in the short period of time that members of Congress do. You know, I, I want to know how how is that ha- possible? How does that happen? You know, I asked myself, you know, gosh, could it be the fact that they that Congress, the regulators of our market, that they might be engaging in, I don't know, insider trading on stocks that they have authority to regulate and have oversight on? Cody, maybe? <laughs> I mean, so I think the reason, ironically, that this has come to the, the forefront is it's kind of this threefold push. So first, uh, you know, with the, uh, the excitement surrounding crypto, more and more people have been paying attention to currencies, to investments, to, um, you know, different ways to purchase, pay, buy, trade, and different ways to have, have your money earned for you. Um, you know, it was a lot of data came out from the pandemic on these, what we got, the, you know, when people got the Trump bucks and got the COVID relief <laughs> funds. Yeah, yeah that the majority of what happened is the debt load of the average American decreased. So what people did is they took that money and they paid down debt. A lot of people did that. And I, what a lot of people also did was invested. And so I think people are paying more attention as one. Two, you had GameStop. And when oh, the yeah. GameStop excitement happened, a lot of people started paying way more attention to trading in the market, seeing like, oh, you could just artificially bump all of this and push all these up. And there's a whole kind of sketchy underbelly to this world. Um, And the last thing is this uh, account that came out that rose to great popularity. That was the uh, Nancy Pelosi stock uh, tracker. Have you seen this? I have not. And so all, all congressmen... Uh, are required to report their investments. It's they, they have open records laws, so they're required to report to the people what they're invested in. And so it's all public information. And so what this account basically did was recognize that Nancy Pelosi has made massive gains on her wealth every year that she's been in office. And so it was like, well, how is she doing it? And, and she she regularly beats the standard market, the Buffett, you know, the Buffett challenge of, if you can beat my, you know, st- or if what's the S and P? Yeah, what's his challenge? I think I don't know. It's like I think it, it might be the S and P. He has a challenge, or essentially, if you could beat like a standard market indicator uh, and actually beat it with actually like specific investments over an extended period, that he'll give you a million dollars, and nobody's ever been able to do it. Uh, and like, Pelosi has. So she just regularly beats the the standard market predictors, no problem. And so this account was like, well, we're just going to track her stocks and I'm going to publish it. And then everybody will know how to do it. And it caused quite the uproar. The account went from kind of like not being known to being massively popular. And this started provoking a lot of questions of people of, wait a minute, how is this happening? How are these people getting so much money? Uh, And so I... Who, who? I guess we don't really know yet what the the actual answer is. Um, what's shocking is so I pulled some data on this because I was curious, and 
the when you look at the overall wealth of Congress, it's hard to use that as an estimator because a lot of people go into Congress wealthy, right? Some people are like really, you know, popular, well-off yeah, I mean, businessmen. Yeah, a lot of times you have money to jump out your election. I mean, if you're especially if you're at the senatorial level, you already have a lot of money for that name brand recognition. So yeah, I mean, we, we, let's, let's acknowledge that a lot of members of Congress go in already wealthy, but that's not all of them. And that's still like, I'll let you go with this uh, with, your, with your data point because I think it's really interesting. Well, and so, I mean, that's the key, right, is that name recognition wins elections and money gets you name recognition. If you have a lot of money, you don't have to worry about do- campaign donations and dealing with like all the laws surrounding campaign donations because you can spend your own money. And so you see really popular businessmen. So in Colorado, you saw Hickenlooper and you see Polis, right? Those are two really good examples of successful businessmen that used their wealth to leverage it to win elections. So it's hard to just look at overall wealth. I don't think that's a good indicator. What is a good indicator is the average net worth increase. And so Ballotopedia, it looks like they pulled data from like 04 to 2012 um, as a period. And they looked at the average net worth increase for members of Congress as compared to the average net worth increase for just standard citizens. Now, the average net worth increase for a member, a member of Congress, this is average. Some people lose money. It happens. Their average increase was fifteen point four percent. Oh, it's a good number, right? If you're increasing your number. wealth by fifteen point four percent, you're doing a good job. That's awesome. The average net worth increase for citizens was three point seven percent. So, well, correlation isn't causation, right? This uh-huh. doesn't mean that that's what it is, and generally in Congress, you're going to have people that are paying a lot more attention. You're not going to have people that are you know, Marxists living in communes in rural areas and not caring about their wealth that is decreasing every year and hurting all of us, but you know, whatever. Um, So there is going to be some bias here just with the sample, but that's a notable difference. And so it really doesn't sound like they're representative of the people, right? That, that whole notion. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, and that's, <laughs> that's the problem, right? Is Congress has become a job. Congress has become something where people strive for, they want to be employed and they want to be congressmen for their careers. They want you to know, be representatives and senators for their careers. And they can, because they're averaging a 15.4% wealth increase. And that, and, and, to be clear, that 15% increase is not from their salaries. Again, their salaries are not actually all that significant. It comes from their investments. I will say, you know, I don't care much for AOC, uh, um, the representative from New York, but she brings up a point that in political science has a lot of, a lot of validity. I don't know if I agree with it, but it, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a terrible outright theory. When we look at the average member of Congress, especially in the Senate, they are usually on average wealthier than, than the average American um, by, by significant portion. And there's always been a question of why is this the case? Why does this happen? Working as a member of Congress is actually a very financially draining exercise. If, if, you, if you don't have all of those investments, working for Congress is actually quite difficult because uh, you, so you get paid those, that, that six figures, right? Which, you know, for some of us, we'd be happy to have, but you also have to pay for the rent at your home state because by law, you have to still reside in your state. And then you also have to pay for housing while you're in Washington, DC. And that housing is not necessarily paid for 
on, on a taxpayer. You know, your, the, their flights to and from home might be on occasion, but not their not their rent. Okay, sometimes they're second home, and so you have a lot of instances in which members are sometimes don't necessarily lose money, but they're certainly not making a lot of money on average from working at, in Congress. And so one of the theories from in the political science field and something that AOC proposed early in her career was raising the, the salary of, of members of Congress to be significantly higher. Because the argument goes, only those, um, uh, you know, raising salaries because those people who are able to afford being a member of Congress are already significantly wealthy. Those who are not don't generally run because they don't, A, they don't have the means to run. And then B, being a member of Congress is a significant opportunity cost. If you increase the salary of a member of Congress, you can attract a wider swath of people who could make a living off of their tenure in office. So there's a benefit that you can get more people to be members of Congress, not just the already wealthy. On the other side, you know, the framers would roll in their grave on being able to make a living off of being a member of Congress. Exactly. That's <laughs> the, no, no, no. We don't need to raise that. The problem is that we're treating this as a career. Yeah. Being a congressman should not be a career. It is supposed to be a public servant position. And a lot of people throw that around and it's essentially like this meaningless term that we have at this point. But this is supposed to be a position of representing your constituents, your people in the exercise of federal power that will affect your people, right? This is supposed to be a direct relationship. And honestly, congressmen should lose money. They should, this should be something where it is a, you are, you are someone had a pocket on this because it is so important that this role is not supposed to be lucrative. It is not supposed to be a job where you, a job, it's not supposed to be something where you can go in and just, you know, magically make a living. I mean, look, so the average, the, the bottom salary for a, a congressman is $174,000, right? That's a lot of money. That's a, a good chunk of change. Right. When you're talking about some, for some of these people, for Nancy Pelosi, she actually makes more. She makes like 225. That's she's the speaker. Speaker of the house. Um, 225,000 is a drop in the bucket to her net worth. Like it doesn't mean anything, but you're also looking at some of these people. There are people that have been in Congress as of this month. There are people that have been in Congress for 49 years. Like there are people that were elected to Congress. Like when my dad was a kid. Wow. And that is, I mean, that's a huge problem. These people are no longer, I mean, they're still getting elected, but they've created a, a business out of being a congressman. And that is the huge problem. But one thing I want to push back on on this story is, right, is everybody's concern here is insider trading. Everybody's yeah. focus is that, well, Nancy Pelosi has inside information and she gets to, she's trading on that information to make wealth. Mm -hmm. That is a problem. Here's a bigger problem. Federal congressmen have the ability to influence the market that they can then trade on. Yeah. I actually don't really have a problem with insider trading. And I have a really weird position on this, which we could dig into later at some point. The idea of prohibiting people from using their knowledge to benefit their lives is, is kind of problematic to me. Yeah. 
it's one thing when that knowledge, but, but it's different when that knowledge is gained as being a federal representative, right? I mean, it's a little bit grosser. Yeah. Um, it's different when you've risen to a position that gives you access to that knowledge. But that set, that set aside, the problem here is that Nancy Pelosi has the ability to affect the market so much and know, has this knowledge that like what the federal government is going to do, and it's going to have such a large, large effect on the market that she can then trade on it. So the problem isn't necessarily the the existence of the knowledge. It isn't the insider trading. If that is what's going on, we don't know. The problem is that they have that impact, (laughs) that they have so much effect that they know how to make giant gains. And so if this comes out and that's really what's going on and that's the problem and she's not just the most brilliant uh, stock trader of all time. That is what we need to address. We have to address this expanse of, of federal government and this, you know, Congress having its fingers in, in everything. Yeah, it, it's it's no. Maybe she gets the best cookies, not because she know she knows where to get the best cookies, but because she has her hand in the cookie jar all the damn time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to use a really bad analogy. OK, so that's no that that's. There's there might there's probably some corruption somewhere. Maybe it's personal corruption, or maybe it's just the fact that Congress is just on the whole corrupt to begin with. There's probably some corruption somewhere. Is the most evergreen true statement ever? <laughs> it's an unfalsifiable premise, but it is also just dead on. <laughs> vague, vague is true, but not always helpful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we do have some uh, other newsworthy items. We're going to go over quickly. Uh, the Transportation Security Agency will allow illegal immigrants uh, to use uh, warrants for their arrest as a proper identification. Um, I, this is just fascinating, Cody. This is just brilliant. I saw this and it blew my mind. It is I mean, easier to have an identification as an illegal immigrant than it is to vote. I, I, I don't even know what to talk about. I. There's just like my entire, my brain is, is firing on all the wrong cylinders. It, it was astonishing to me to see this. I mean, just the, the overreach that is already the TSA, right? Mm-hmm. The, the craziness, the violations that they conduct on a daily basis. Um, what, what was that quote from the article you read? What, what did it say? Oh, so they so had the, the specifics, didn't they? Yeah. So people accused the TSA of doing this. People accused the TSA of saying, hey, look. You're letting illegal aliens use arrest warrants for identification. And TSA came out and confirmed it. And the, the quote is, for non-citizens and non-U.S. nationals who do not otherwise have acceptable forms of ID for presentation at security checkpoints, TSA may also accept certain DHS-issued forms, That's Department, Department of Homeland Security, Homeland security <laughs> nice. including ICE Form I-200 warrant for an arrest of an illegal alien <laughs> that's the quote so they're like yeah yeah you could totally use ice forms oh yeah the, I, yeah, the ice form i200 the the warrant arrest form yeah you can use that one that was good now they, they they tried to specify they're like well this is a civil immigration arrest warrant not a criminal arrest warrant right because it's not I'm a not crime sure. to crime no it's not a crime to enter our country no illegally it's yeah, not a crime yeah so it's just kind of like 
I, I'm not sure when you're like debating the, the the level of your warrant that they're using to get through supposedly a secure checkpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you might be losing the messaging battle there. But I just, I mean, on top of all the other stuff that like we you have to suffer with TSA and we have to deal with with TSA and the violation of people's rights with TSA. Just on top of that all being like, yeah, no, we know it's fine. If you're like, if you're an illegal immigrant, you're you're good. Just make sure you bring your warrant with you to the airport. No, 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 no. We're not going to arrest you. We just need to see your warrant so we can let you through. TSA is not going to arrest you. DHS might, but we won't. Oh, man. What, Other... what a story. What a headline. <laughs> That's a great headline. Other news. Um, Microsoft bought uh, Blizzard Activision, the uh, big... Um, a video game developer for about $70 billion. Uh, you know, this is after a few months ago when they bought uh, Bethesda as well. And, you know, this is, this is big. Microsoft is, you know, definitely trying to close in on the video game market. Um, some call this, you know, just a mega corporation trying to get bigger and bigger, gobbling up more. And that very well might be the case. And you might have problems with that. On the other hand, you might also see, that, see it as the opportunity for a, 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 an or an organization that has done very well in the video game uh, uh, realm sector, uh, take on some video game franchises like, you know, Call of Duty and give it a nice little reboot. You know, who knows, right? Maybe they can do something fresher than what's been happening. All I want is Microsoft to buy out EA and fire those jackasses at the top of EA. I can't stand them. Uh, if this gives them that much more leverage to do so, by all means. I'm really, so, I mean, I'm really curious about your hatred of EA and, and where this stems from. Mm. But I, uh, setting that aside, mm. I, I do not share your optimism. Um, not from the problem that some people are saying of this being like monopoly building, right? Yeah. This is Microsoft and Sony are, are competing back and forth to establish whoever can own the most <laughs> video game franchises at yeah. this point, because they're trying to make them platform exclusives and whatnot. Um, here's where I think there actually might be problems is call of duty, which is owned by Activision, which is developed by Activision is probably the biggest gun related video game on the market. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it is a culture changer. Yeah. And what call of duty has done for the gun industry and the gun world is unparalleled because it has exposed so many people to weapons, firearms, tactics, the importance of those things, the importance of, I mean, you're talking about, there are people sitting on couches that know how to clear rooms, like appropriately, like are actually learning tactics. Now, is there a difference between doing it in a video game world and doing it in real life? Absolutely. But the knowledge is present. Well, if not the muscle memory. Exactly. And you're exposing all of those people to the importance of firearms, to the importance of self-defense, to the importance of being able to defend against an attacker. I cannot tell you how many people I know in the firearms industry, in the gun industry, in this world that like to go out shooting that got into it because of playing Call of Duty. Really? It has been a, a huge exposure for the world. There are literally entire like gun influencers on social media that got their start by like mocking Call of Duty or not like not mocking, making fun of, but like mocking up Call of Duty setups in real life and running them on ranges. And that's how they got into shooting. So it it has a huge influence on the culture. I think there's a lot of reasons that civilians are running actual gear now, that civilians are running 
plate carriers and carrier groups and actually set up rifles is because of seeing things on Call of Duty. And then hopefully they go and get trained and actually learn things and, and mm-hmm. can apply that in the real world. Here's my concern. Microsoft is not known for being pro-gun. <laughs> and I, I think that they'll probably see money over uh, everything else and that they're probably going to realize the oh, cash 100%. cow that Call of Duty is. And so it's probably not going to change all that much. You know, l- listen, it, it, it's one of those speak out your mouth one way, act in a different way. I'm happy. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm content with buying from a hypocrite so long as I get what I want. Yeah. So I just, I'm really hopeful that we don't lose that access to the culture because more people being exposed to civilian firearm ownership is just better for all of us. And so I really hope that that doesn't change. So that's my big nervousness. But all right. That, that's fair. All right. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we'll, we'll see what they do with it. That's a big, big, it's a massive, massive company that they just, or con- conglomerate really that they just bought. Yeah. Um, Last up, you know, we're the duo of doom, so we kind of have to deliberately add some positivity to our episode. So your positivity booster is um, the book of Boba Fett is out. It's been out for about four or five weeks. For my fellow Star Wars nerds, I hope you're loving it. I know there were some weird moments, especially with the uh, Espa Vespa speeder bikes. I know that was kind of a weird moment, but everything else I think is just fantastic. I cannot get enough of this. uh, th- this Boba Fett reinventing himself. I'm here for it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, if, you ha- if you haven't seen it, find someone who has a Disney Plus account and uh, ask to watch it. It's it's a it's a bunch of fun. I have a positivity boost too. I know that I hadn't shared it prior, so I'm just going to go cold on Stanton here. But I have seen this month, this year, uh, more so than ever before, so many people making resolutions, goals, whatever you want to call them and action towards like truly educating themselves about what's going on in our world. And so I have seen so many people start paying attention. I, I cannot tell you in my world, how many reading groups have been set up of people just wanting to like dig into some of it's been like founding era documents. I'm reading Aristotle with a friend who's taking it for, uh, for her master's program now. So I'm going back and reading Aristotle because I was like, well, I might as well have an excuse to do that again. People reading, you know, other philosophy books, people reading, you know, modern political books to like try and get this interpretation in these different reading groups. People starting to take online courses and look at like what ways they can get it, but also people just starting to pay attention and people really making it a actual push. And so you know, I will bring this up again in six months and I will really hope that people will still be on that train and will still be focused on that. But it has been very cool to see that the response to all this craziness for the past couple of years, this response to just everything into the system, into the, the recent election, into the inflation, into all of this is just people getting involved, people getting educated and people speaking up. And so that's been really, really cool to see. And I feel like January has been this like kind of renewed and revitalized push. So I hope it lasts. I hope this isn't like new year's resolution. The gym is empty in February, but uh, that has been almost as good as the new Boba Fett series. You know what? (laughs) I had, I had just a little fun thing and Cody 
pulled out and he and he made it very 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 real very very good so he he wins the positivity booster for no well so the thing i loved about the boba fett series so i haven't sat down and watched it yet but um the hilarious filibuster scene from parks and rec where is identical where Patton oswald like gets up and literally like filibusters the entire meeting i saw a side-by-side of him giving that filibuster of how like boba fett reaches his hand out from the sarlacc pit a side by side with the opening scene of Boba Fett, and it is literally identical. It's identical. It's. I like, really hope that they did it intentionally. I'm pretty sure Filoni and Favreau were, were like, "Yeah, that's we can't do that better. Let's go for it." <laughs> so that was that was a wonderful uh, wonderful exposure. So I'll sit down and watch it soon, and I'll let you know what I think. Please do so. All right, everybody. This has been your in the news for January. Uh, we will have our deep dive on one of these subjects. We're not entirely certain. We we had an idea for mandates, but you know. Who knows? Maybe Ukraine uh, goes to war. Um, So here's to hoping that doesn't happen. But if it does, then we'll have something interesting (laughs) to say. Uh, You can find us on all the social medias. Wait, so so in other words, you'll hear about mandates unless we're engaged in World War Three, in which case we might decide to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's the idea. All right, cool. I just want to make sure we clarified that. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Um, please give us a follow. You can find us on Apple, on Spotify, and just about anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next time. <laughs>